A cell phone left behind in a taxi cab in Fiji shocks the nation. Then we travel to Mexico to see if there's any truth to the rumors that a satanic homeless person is letting the world he will no longer get dumped on. And then we travel to Los Angeles to take a look at the story of Philip Taylor Kramer. First, he was a bassist for the band Iron Butterfly. Then he began working on missile systems for the U.S. government. But in the end, he mysteriously disappeared. Is it possible that it was suicide? Or was someone truly out to get him? Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. We have a ton of stuff to cover. No joke, you heard about all this stuff in the intro. Let's see if we actually get to the stories I presented. First off, let's give a shout out to today's supporter. It's another person who supported my 2019 Thanksgiving live stream. Sorry it took so long to give a round of applause for SK. Everyone give a round of applause for SK. He's slithering in like a snake. Holding a K, holding a K with them. SK, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the show financially, that's fine too. Just help spread the word about the show. Really, really, really helps out a lot. So SK, we're going to give you your little reptilian hands. You're going to evolve some arms and legs, I'm hoping, for this episode. Otherwise, it'll be tricky. I'm going to toss you an oar. You can catch it in your little snake mouth until your arms grow. Uh, it's a tiny oar. It's a tiny souvenir oar. I'm tossing you an oar to the... Dead Rabbit Robo, we are leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. We are headed to the island nation of Fiji. That's us rowing. Very, very dynamic sound effect. The year is 2016, and specifically we're in the town of Sava in Fiji. Beep, beep. Cars are driving down the road, taxi cabs. There's like a bus, a couple people on bicycles. A normal day in the city of Sava. And some guy gets into this taxi cab, and he sits down, and he goes, Ow, my butt! He, he gets up, and he realizes someone had left their phone in this taxi cab. He asks the taxi cab driver, Hey, is this your phone? The taxi cab driver's like, No, I have my phone in the front of the cab. Why would I have my phone in the back of the cab? Oh, chill out, bro. I was just asking. I found the cell phone. Do you have any idea whose it is? The taxi cab driver thinks about it, and he goes, well, you know, I did have these other fares, but, you know, people come and go. It's a taxi. You just hop in a taxi. You get out. Hopefully, when you get out, you take everything with you. But here's this cell phone. Now, the man who finds his cell phone, like we all would, if it's an unlocked phone, I've done this. I know you guys have done it. I've found several phones in my life. You'll start scrolling through stuff. And this phone had a video. How are you not going to watch a video on a mysterious phone that you found? That story, that intro, seems to be in dispute. I actually am getting this story from the Fordian map. We've talked about this several times on the show. It's an interactive map of weird events. Some of them have turned out not to be verifiable. This one is. But that intro I just told you, I can't verify if that part's true. But the second part is 100% true because it's available on YouTube. Whether or not the video came from the cell phone that was found in the back of the taxi cab or that's some sort of bizarre creepypasta, the fact of the matter is, There is cell phone footage from Fiji taken out in the middle of the ocean. There's wreckage of a boat. There's like debris just kind of floating there. The boat itself is overturned. And there's people hanging on to it. But what's weird is that the person who's taking the video isn't part of the debris. They're not holding their phone up and they're like, maybe I'll get a signal. But until then, selfie as they're floating. There's a boat floating next to the debris filming all this stuff. 
And they're not making a move to rescue these people. They're letting these four people cling to this debris in the middle of the ocean. This goes on for about five minutes. Five minutes of just videotaping people clinging to life. And then you hear someone say behind the camera, Buka! Buka! Which means fire. Now, it's not like they're watching a fire envelop the debris. Someone is telling the people on the safe boat to open fire. And for the next five minutes, you watch people clinging to this debris as bullets are flying past them into the water. And one by one, all four of these men are killed. I watched a little bit of the video when it was on autoplay when I was reading articles. I have not watched the video in full. I don't know how graphic it is. I'm not into that stuff. I've seen enough of that stuff in real life. I don't like watching videos of it. But it's on YouTube, apparently, and people have complained. YouTube goes... The reason why we haven't... They may have taken it down at this point, but when these articles were showing up back in 2016, they hadn't. And the reason why is they go, one, this is like docu- this is like news. This is like a documentary thing. I know their standards have changed since 2016, so... But there are still clips of it out there if you're morbidly interested. I recommend not watching it, but... Because you're just basically watching four people be executed, be murdered. But YouTube was like, you know, this is news. This is documentary style thing. So it's all on video, right? Even though, whether or not the guy found the phone in the back seat, the authorities have the video. At the end of the video, the camera turns towards the people on the safe boat, and they're, they're doing selfies. They're smiling and laughing. They just killed four people. Very, very chilling video. It's been four years. There's been no rests on this. People can't even... The the video is authentic. No one is debating that the video is fake or it's staged or it's part of a movie set. But people don't know the specifics. The Fiji police have said, we don't know who the perpetrators are. Even though we got like a full shot of their faces, we can't tell who they are. And we're not even for sure who the people executed are. Some people say that they appear Caucasian. It's really like blurry cell phone camera footage from 2016. But some people say they appear Caucasian. Some people say they appear like they're from Fiji, that they're natives to the island of Fiji. But the story that the authorities are going with is, listen, we don't know who did it, but the people that they were shooting were Somalis, were Somali pirates, and it happens. The story that that is kind of the official thing is, this boat tried to hijack this other boat, they destroyed it, and then they killed the pirates. And they go, welcome to Fiji. That's what you get for being a pirate. So it's been four years, and as far as I can tell, there have been no arrests made on this stuff. Maybe the cops did find the people who did it, and they told that story, and it was self-defense, and they just dropped it. Who knows? But there is video out there of four people being executed as they cling onto debris. And if it was self-defense, it was self-defense. Well, actually, that's not, that's not self-defense. There's no court in the world that would say that was self-defense. Like, once the pirates start stop posing a threat... So crazy stories out there. I just thought it was a weird one. I love clicking around on that Fordian map. Sometimes you find stuff a little more lighthearted. <laughs> you find stuff about children being killed by snowballs. Just a little more lighthearted because it's most likely not true. This one, there's video footage. Four people lost their lives. They may have been engaged in illegal activity or not. We don't know. But either way, it's a brutal reminder of life in the high seas. Even in the year 2016, even today. It's a very, very brutal world out there. You got this, you got the Bermuda Triangle, you got the Kraken. It's brutal out there, but yeah. So anyways, it's kind of a downer way to start this episode, but I thought it was an interesting story, a mystery nonetheless. Almost like finding a, like a cursed video 
but you don't get cursed. You're just kind of cursed with the memory of finding a phone of somebody who murdered a bunch of people. That was their phone. Again, if that taxicab story is true, that guy got in a taxi right after or shortly after a murderer got out. We covered a story like that before in Alaska. A guy dropped the SIM card out of his phone. Someone was walking down the street and they found a SIM card laying in the middle of the ground or like a memory chip. And they put it in because people are curious and it was him serial killing women. It was like him stepping on the necks of indigenous women in Alaska. I I wonder, I I should check that out and see if there's ever been any resolution to that. They arrested the guy, but I don't think they had the trial. I'll put that episode in the show notes, but that was a creepy one too. You never know what you're going to find. Real quick too, um, I want to give a shout out to Abraham Carcaz de Gaulle. He actually recommended I watch a movie the other day. <laughs> actually, last year he recommended it, October of 2019. A movie called Wounds, starring Army Hammer. I had never heard of this movie. I'm a huge, you guys, long-time listeners of the show now, I'm a huge Army Hammer fan. I watched the movie Wounds. It's actually about finding a cursed cell phone. It's an interesting movie. It's a creepy movie. It doesn't rise to the level of a Dead Rabbit Recommends. But if you're looking for like an afternoon streamer, if you're looking for something to kind of watch that's kind of spooky, check out Wounds. Starring everyone's favorite cannibal, Army Hammer. It's actually a really visually an interesting film. I don't think it stuck the the ending, though. That's why I'm hesitant. But I think the ride was very fun. The ending was just weak. But it was also about a man who finds a phone and starts scrolling through it. And the, it's it, 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 visually, it's really good. And up until the last five minutes, it's a very, very intriguing film. Just doesn't stick the landing. So... That's kind of a tepid Dead Rabbit Recommends, but it it has to do with that last story, and it involves Army Hammer. Thank you, Abraham, for sending that to me last year. Last year, thanks for recommending that movie. SK, I want you to call in the Dead Rabbit Dirigible. We're leaving behind the island nation of Fiji. We are headed out to Guadalajara, Mexico. Dead Rabbit Dirigible's taking the nice long journey over the tropical waters of Fiji. We're just kicking back. Drinking our drinks of choice. For me, it's Sprite Zero Sugar. Ah, refreshing. SK can't drink anything. He's a snake. He doesn't have arms yet. He's piloting with his whole body. He's steering the steering wheel. We're headed out to Guadalajara, Mexico. It's December 2019. And this story was recommended to me by Gerardo Campos. He actually sent me the story about... The UFO base in Mexico that was protecting this city from hurricanes. Really, really interesting. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Gerardo, thanks for recommending this one. This one is a mystery. It's a mystery. It might seem a little corny, but it's full of nuts. There's a bunch of weirdos running around. You'll notice sometimes it's like a slippery mystery. You can't really predict it. But at the same time, sometimes it's hard and you kind of have to force the mystery out. It's all sorts of ways. There's all sorts of puns I can use. SK's shaking his little snake head. It's December 2019, and we're really going from, like, December to around March 2020, when the COVID crisis is just beginning. Remember that? Remember that, guys? How, like, the shelves are empty, the toilet paper, and it's nice to look back on that to know how far we've come. Like, that state of panic in those first couple months, it was just awful. It was absolutely awful. But think how far we've come since then, mentally and as a society, and things are getting, things are already way better than they were March 2020, February 2020. They are, so remember that. Don't let all this stuff still get you down. we still got a ways to go, and we're, I'm not minimizing the people who passed away from it, but 
we're moving forward. Things are getting better. So remember that, guys. But back then, when people were hoarding toilet paper and hand sanitizer, and you didn't know what caused COVID or what you could do. Did you have to wash your groceries? Did you have to wash your hands? I never washed my hands so much until COVID. Guadalajara, Mexico, as things are getting locked down, shut down, stores are emptied, a mystery begins to appear in the city. Someone's walking through Guadalajara, and they see on the side of a church a cross. That's not a mystery. That's kind of where crosses belong, right? But this cross was made of human poop. Now, I'm going to temper your expectations. It's not a 3D cross. It's not like a guy molded human poop and made like a giant six-foot life-sized cross. He painted on it on the wall. He took human poop and he made a cross on the wall of this church. And people are obviously like, that's gross, right? You know, if I was walking down the street and I saw brown marks on the wall, I don't think I'd automatically assume it was poop. So I'm thinking they got close enough. I'm thinking they got close enough to smell it. Because otherwise I'd be like, oh no, that house, it's covered in poop. They're like, no, Jason, this is brown paint. All these doors, their whole doors are poop. No, Jason, doors just happen to be brown. People are walking up to it. They can smell it. This is fresh human excrement. But you don't really think anything of it. I mean, it is kind of, you do think something of it. It's not that blase, but it's human poop in the shape of a cross. Maybe someone just had to wipe their hand twice. But these poop crosses begin to appear on other churches in town. And apparently, if you connect all the poop crosses on all the different churches in town, it makes a pentagram. So people go, Saint Worshipper. Saint Worshipper, with way too much time on his hands, way too much time, not enough toilet paper, decided to make poop crosses and make the satanic symbol in the middle of the city. We need to do something about this. Other people say, that's a good theory and all. I've always believed in the satanic poop conspiracy. But the poop crosses weren't just appearing on churches at a certain point. They began appearing on advertisements. You'd see an advertisement for not Sprite Zero Sugar. They'd have an advertisement for some other soft drink, Fanta. And there'd be a big poop cross on it. You'd have an advertisement for McDonald's poop cross on it. You had an advertisement for Arby's. You couldn't tell. You couldn't tell if there was poop on that thing. The whole billboard looked gross. But the point is, is that you started seeing these poop marks on these billboards. And I'm thinking they're talking about like bus stop ads. (laughs) They're not like the giant billboards that overlook the city. That would take a ton of poop. So then people are going, maybe it's not Satanism, man. Maybe it's someone trying to stick it to society and say consumerism is like poop. And when you're eating that fast food, it's like you're eating poop. And when you're putting on that Maybelline makeup, it's like putting poop on your face. This guy is striking a blow, a poop smelling blow against the capitalist system. This actually became national news in Mexico. Again, during the coronavirus pandemic, during the point where nobody knew if you would ever get this cured, how bad it was or anything, this was national news. Who's pooping all over the city of Guadalajara and making poop crosses? There is a working theory, and it's hard to tell whether or not this is true. This is from a Facebook post, but somebody said they were walking down the street one day, and they smelled something. It smelled vile and disgusting. They're like, that's weird. The Arby's is on the other side of town. They continue to follow their nose like, like a disgusting Toucan Sam, and they see a homeless man with hands full of poop. And they go, I'm going to go talk to that guy. I'm going to get to the bottom of this mystery. And when they ask this homeless man with hands full of poop, why are you doing this, man? Is it a Satan thing? Is it like a capitalist thing? Like, what's going on with the homeless man? What are you talking about? 
He says, I'll tell you, it's kind of both. He says that the world has turned its back on him. God has turned his back on him. So he is now going to fight back the only way he can. By rubbing poop. (laughs) By rubbing poop in the form of crosses all over the city. That's... That's convenient. That's a convenient origin story, right? There's no proof of this person. We have photos of all these other oddball characters, the woman of bones in Russia, the flautist in Brazil. There's no photos of this guy actively painting with poop. So that could be the case, but it also wraps everything up nicely and it makes you kind of think, maybe we do treat the homeless poorly, which we do treat the homeless poorly, but it's just too too nice in a bow. Someone who's rubbing poop all over the city it's not, he's not going to turn around and be like, let me tell you the 13 reasons why. Like, he's just rubbing poop. He may have a reason, but I don't know how lucid he would be in explaining those things. It's, here's my theory. You guys know I'm a poop expert because I cover it so often on the show. I think that it's a bunch of copycats. I think there was probably like one or two. I think it's all real poop, but some guy's taking like nutter butter. I think it's all real poop, but I think that it's not like a single idea. It's almost like the Joker from The Dark Knight. He basically wanted to create a world of chaos and would hope that other people would embrace the chaos. Maybe one person didn't have toilet paper. And that was another thing that it was a protest against the toilet paper shortage. Like, Mexico, you don't have enough toilet paper. I'm going to wipe it on a church. It may have been it may have been just one homeless person one night smeared some poop somewhere, didn't really think anything of it, and the fire rises. Then everyone else was like, we'll do it too. Businessmen are walking down the street, throwing their poop. Mothers walking down the street with two babies rubbing the baby butts on the walls. It was an uprising. But who knows? Because this mystery has never been solved. Was there a reason for the poop crosses? They seem to have dwindled out now. So maybe it was a toilet paper shortage, but was it really a message to the powers that be that we're not going to get crapped on anymore? Was it just a bunch of copycats? Was it just a bunch of people did it at the same time and they all thought they were the only ones doing it? And they were like, oh no, am I going to get caught for all 50 cases? Who knows? It is a mystery that will endure until the end of time. We have successfully developed a COVID vaccine, but we still can never figure out who pooped in the form of a cross all over Mexico. That's why this podcast exists, ladies and gentlemen, for those endearing and enduring mysteries. SK, call on that carpenter copter. We are leaving behind Guadalajara, Mexico. We're headed shortly up north. We're going to Los Angeles. I didn't have time to tell this story yesterday. Um, I, I believe I'll have time today. But let's take a look here. This story was recommended to me by Tressa via Patreon. So Tressa, thank you so much. Longtime listener of the show. So it's 1995 and we're standing outside the house of Philip Taylor Kramer. He's a middle-aged man. He's standing there. He's in like a sweater and his glasses and he gently nudges them. He has a warm cup of coffee and he's sitting down. He has no pants on. Those are the only clothes he has. It's a sweater. He's sitting down in front of his computer drinking the coffee and he's looking at a CD-ROM and he's trying to figure it out. Now, his business is working on ways to compress information and put them onto CD-ROMs. And his business is actually, theoretically, doing great. They're making some huge breakthroughs on how to actually put more and more information onto a CD-ROM. CD-ROMs can hold like 750 megabytes, and even I think that was later in time. I think back in 1995, they didn't have the dual-layered CDs. 
And Philip knew this was the key to the future of data storage and computers and video games and things like that. 1995. He's on the cusp of this breakthrough. He sits back, takes another sip of his coffee. He feels the gentle night breeze blow across his bare legs, and he goes, what a long, strange journey it's been. I want to do a quick flashback. <laughs> I should be busy working. I have a deadline. But instead, I'm going to have a flashback. The year is 1974, and Philip Taylor Kramer is not a computer nerd, but he is a nerd, actually. All throughout high school, he was into a bunch of nerdy stuff. He's getting picked on all the time. Teachers are picking on him. They're like, you like science so much. Drink the speaker. Professor, why are you doing this to me? But he, in 1974, he goes, you know what? I've done enough science-y stuff. I'm going to study the science of rock and roll. He becomes the bassist for Iron Butterfly. Now, this is after their glory days. This is after Inagata De Vita. This is after that. But he did play on two of their albums, Scorching Beauty and Sun and Steel. So in 1974, he joins the band, and then he does a side project with a couple of the members, and then just goes, you know what? You know what my real passion is? It's not banging groupies and doing drugs. No. I miss my science. So he actually leaves the music industry and goes back to doing the science stuff. He goes back to college. He gets a degree in aerospace engineering, and from there goes to work for the Department of Defense. He's actually working on top-secret weapon systems for the Department of Defense. Now, listen, that's dope. First off, you're a rock and roll musician. You're going on tour. You're making albums. You're making music. Then you get to go work for the man and make a ton of money and build weapons that hopefully will someday shoot down space aliens. That's pretty awesome stuff. But then he goes, okay, it's time to go to the private sector. So he starts a multimedia company, and they are working on CD-ROM compression software, and they're actually pretty well known in the biz. At this point in 1995, they're given a contract to be a part of the O.J. Simpson case. He's given this video that is evidence, and it needed to be determined for the trial, is this video authentic? So he's working on one of the biggest trials, at that time, the biggest trial of the century, was O.J. Simpson trial. So he's working on that. He has his own business. He has his memories of rock and roll stardom. He has a little stuffed missile that he falls asleep with. Everything's going great. January 1995. He is really, really obsessed with being able to stuff as much information as he can onto a CD-ROM. Because that's his main thing. That's how he plans on changing the world and making a ton of money. Father one day is talking to his son and goes, Why don't you try the universal equation? Philip Taylor Kramer goes, I never, ever considered that. So he applies the universal equation to the CD-ROM. He begins telling everybody, I have broke the limits of compression on a CD-ROM. Everyone's like, that's super boring. You woke me up at three in the morning for that? He's like, no, 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 no. Using the universal equation, I have mastered the art of compressing information. I, 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 this is going to change the world. He stopped sleeping. By his family's accounts, he went two weeks without sleeping. He was working on the universal equation and how it worked with this compact disc. And then he began telling people, this isn't just about the compact disc anymore. By applying the universal equation, I can compress information to such a point that distance becomes irrelevant. I was trying to fit all the information I could on a CD-ROM. I can now fit all the information in the universe in one place. And 
I can take a piece of information from Earth, send it to the edge of reality, and back in a matter of minutes. The universal equation has given me all that I need. February 11th, 1995. He calls his friend Lori Peitsch and tells her this, quote, I have to be very, very careful because people are going to want what I'm working on. I was really lucky because I was able to decipher the code and it was heavily encrypted. We have to get off the planet. Unquote. February 12th, 1995. He's at Los Angeles International Airport. He's there to pick up his friend and his friend's wife. They're flying into Los Angeles. They're going to go back to his place, have a couple of drinks, hang out. They're like, oh, I hope he doesn't talk about that stupid equation anymore. Oh, Johnny, he's just being kind. Philip gets to the airport, calls his wife back at home and says, honey, listen, plans have changed. I know I said I was going to be here to pick them up, but plans have changed. When they land, you're going to have to get a hold of them. Tell them to arrange a taxi cab. I'm coming home with a big surprise. Then he calls up his former Iron Butterfly bandmate, Ron Bushy. Ron, Ron, I love you. I have a different wife, different voice when I talk to you as opposed to my wife, but Ron, I love you. I love you more than life itself. Click. Hangs up on Ron. Ron was concerned, obviously hadn't talked to him in a while. Philip calls his wife back and says, quote, Whatever happens, I'll always be with you. At 11.59 p.m. on February 12, 1995, Philip Taylor Kramer makes a phone call to 911. He says, quote, This is Philip Taylor Kramer. I'm going to kill myself. That night, Philip Taylor Kramer goes missing. This is a mystery that, for years, the people of Los Angeles couldn't figure out. It was one of those things where he had friends and family members come forward and say, he told us he would never commit suicide. He said, if I ever kill myself, then that means something happened to me. Which, at this point, you hear that so much as a conspiracy theorist. At this point, I'm wondering how often people say that and then do kill themselves, but they want it to be a mystery. They don't want to be remembered as killing themselves. Because suicide is such a shattered legacy that you say that. I don't really take that at its word anymore. When people go, if I kill myself, then someone finally got to me, and then you find them, and they've taken a bunch of pills and things like that. Like, And, and then for years and years, people go, well, his best friend said that he said he would never kill himself, things like that. I, who knows? Who knows? I don't want to discount it all the time, but I'm more suspicious of it now than I was when I started this show because we come across that so often. But the friends were saying, listen, he said that he would never kill himself. Then you have these stories about what he was working on. In these news articles, a bunch of stuff starts coming up about the universal equation and these claims that he could transport information and he made the claim he could transport matter across the universe. But... it's interesting because this is where we start to get into the web of the articles themselves. The mystery itself is interesting, but then when you look at the reporting of this story, it adds another layer to it. Some of the articles say he claimed to be able to transport information around, and he specifically says, imagine this. Imagine if a child goes missing, and you have a universal grid of every video camera hooked up to one thing, and you have a photo of a child missing. It's immediately uploaded into the net. And within seconds, that child is found on the planet. 
Because we have cameras everywhere, but the, the facial recognition software isn't there. Everyone's wearing a mask nowadays, so facial recognition software is completely useless. I'm surprised the conspiracy theorists aren't more celebrating the masks. Because for the longest time, police state, police state, police state, and now the police can't find me. But anyways, I, I find that so weird about conspiracy theory and the masks. You should like to wear masks. That makes it harder for you to be identified. Bizarre. But anyways, he said the information would travel so quickly that instead of running it through fingerprint databases, which takes forever, or facial recognition databases, which take forever, this isn't the born identity, that's sci-fi you see in the movies, instantaneously, a child would be missing and then you'd find him three states away because some camera in Duluth, Illinois would pick him up. Other articles were saying that he was claiming that he could teleport you Star Trek style across the galaxy or further. I couldn't find any claims that he specifically said that. But I could see where he was saying it was possible because the universal equation was basically a way to break apart Einstein's laws. His family, and his father in particular, believed in this thing that the father created called the universal equation. And what it is, the universal equation in a nutshell is basically you can go faster than the speed of light, that Einstein was wrong. If you can go faster than the speed of light, there's like an unlimited speed. It's not just this speed of light. You can go way, way faster than that. And the father believed that the universal equation was the answer to everything. Now, apparently in these articles, people say scientists looked at the universal equation and they said it was hogwash. But according to Philip Taylor Kramer, who had been raised on this idea of there is an equation that proves Einstein wrong, this is something his family always believed in, when he applied it to the CD compression software, it worked. And he was able to store much more information onto a CD-ROM. So it's interesting how the articles kind of make it sound a little more sci-fi sometimes, and other articles go, no, it was just a way, it was a theory that he could transport information. There's a huge difference between transporting information across the globe and transporting human across the globe. There's a massive difference between the two, just physics-wise. There's another really, really interesting twist to this story. I read multiple articles on this. Thank you again, Trusta, so much for sending it out. When he called up 911, he said, this is Philip Taylor Kramer. I'm going to kill myself. That was the quote that I read on ultimateclassicrock.com. Because it's a big rock and roll mystery, and it's a big Hollywood celebrity mystery as well. That was the quote from them. They, I'm assuming, got the quote from the LA Times article that was published back in 1995, on March 30th, 1995. But that's not the quote. That's not what he said. Well, technically. This is very interesting. So, I've told you the narrative. You have a guy, he's obsessing over the CD-ROM technology. He hasn't slept for two weeks. He's telling everyone, goodbye, I have surprises for you, I love you no matter what. Then he calls up 911 and he says, uh, this is Philip Taylor Kramer, I'm going to kill myself. Phone hangs up. That's not what happened. This is what he actually said. This is Philip Taylor... Think of what I'm about to tell you. It's totally going to change the mental state of this person. It's really, really interesting. LA Times left it out. I think they left it out on purpose. Uh, Ultimate Classic Rock, I think, got it from the LA Times. I'm not faulting them. This is the actual quote. This is Philip Taylor Kramer. I'm going to kill myself. And I want everyone to know OJ Simpson is innocent. They did it. Click. Doesn't that totally change the context of it? Isn't that important to know? It 
totally spins the story on its head. Now listen, O.J. Simpson, you may think he's innocent, you may think he's guilty. We actually did an O.J. Simpson episode a long time ago. I'll put that in the show notes. That was a cool one. It was an iceberg theory about O.J. Simpson. We'll put that in the show notes. But but that makes, when he goes, I'm going to kill myself, and by the way, my final words are O.J. Simpson is innocent. It makes him sound like a conspiracy theorist. makes him sound like a loony when he goes, they did it. Is he referring to the FBI? Now, he had video footage. This wasn't something he was just offering his opinion on. He was working on the trial in an official capacity, so he may have seen something we didn't see. But I think it's really telling they leave that out. Imagine if nowadays uh, Britney Spears called up 911 and, and basically threatened that she was going to kill herself. And then at the end of the call, and she goes, and jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams. Click. They would totally cut that part out. They would totally cut that part out because it, it just makes you go, what? So yeah, I think it's important to note for his mental state, that was the end of the quote. Um, O.J. Simpson is innocent, which again, that's one statement. You can believe O.J. Simpson was innocent, but then they did it. Supposing some sort of government cover-up or some outside agency cover-up. There were some sightings of him. Apparently he was a very tall man. I guess the day before this happened, he asked for some money from his dad. He only he goes, Dad, I only have 40 cents in my pocket. And the dad's like, nah, You'll be okay. Just use the universal equation. That'll open all the doors for you. And he's like, oh, I'm so hungry. There's nothing I can buy for 40 cents. Ten days after he went missing, a tall man was walking around Agora Hills. And he meets this elderly couple. And he goes, hey, do you guys, can I borrow some money? I'm out of money. I'm hungry. I only have 40 cents in my pocket. And the guy's like, get out of here, you bum. Philip Taylor starts pooping his hand. He goes, I'll show you. The old man goes, get out of here, bum. And then his wife was like, oh, he shouldn't have treated him like that. He obviously wasn't homeless. Like <laughs> You can treat the homeless people like that, but not him. He just seemed like a nice guy. So people have thought that that might have been him. That was 10 days after February 12th when he was at the airport. After that, too, because, you know, the whole city was looking for this guy. After that, too, his wife claimed she got a phone call from him. And she heard, she was like, for sure it was her husband. And she heard him go, hello, hello. Hello. And then that was it. But other than that, the mystery was done until May 29th, 1999, four years later. His van is found at the bottom of a ravine in Malibu. These two men have a hobby of taking photographs of car wrecks in canyons. Because there's a lot of them. And they saw this minivan crashed into the ravine. And they said it basically looked like it took a nosedive off. It was actually still sitting on its nose, crushed in this ravine. It was a 300-foot fall. A car speeding off a ravine, possibly suicide. 300-foot fall in a motor vehicle is definitely going to kill you. Accident. Maybe he was in a delusional state. He hadn't slept for 12 days. Who knows even longer if he's wandering the streets, if that was him bumming money. But he loses control of the car. It goes off the cliff. It crashes into this ravine. The ravine's littered with cars. This happens all the time. And it just stayed down there for all those years. They couldn't determine the cause of death. Some news articles say that it was classified as a probable suicide. I saw other news reports where the coroner refused to do a ruling. They said there's just not enough information. Could be an accident. Could be a suicide. We just don't know. The reason why people keep leaning towards the suicide thing, other than him saying, I'm going to kill myself tonight, his company was hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. That's the big problem with private businesses. It's that risk-reward. He was on the cusp of making these huge breakthroughs, but at that point he had borrowed so much money, he needed to make those breakthroughs. He needed to make this work. 
But the reason why the mystery is still mystery, I mean, other than the fact there is no satisfactory conclusion, the license plates on his car were removed. So even though the car crashed nose first into the ravine, it's still down there, I believe, actually. I don't think they'd ever be able to pick it up. These photographers say you can just walk through in there and you see all these smashed up cars. The license plates were removed. And even though the way that it impacted ballooned out the metal, like it just kind of, like dropping a bag of pudding off of a cliff, except without the delicious explosion, you know, it just billowed out. The license plates were nowhere to be found, which would make it a hundred times harder to identify the car. The reason why they actually were able to track this car down was because of the photographers who had been doing this hobby, taking pictures of these cars in these ravines, they were, these cars were so old, they weren't coming across human remains. When they went to this particular car, they saw bones in it. Well, they go, I don't know, it could be animal bones or something like that. We're not going to get too spooked out. And as they were walking away, one of them tripped on a human skull. So they alerted the authorities and the authorities came out and they do this investigation using dental records were able to track it back to Philip Taylor Kramer. Had the skull been removed completely from the scene, had the teeth not been available, they would have never identified this car. Maybe if they ran the VIN numbers or something like that. But I mean, there's other ways to identify a car. But it would make it much harder. They wouldn't have any reason to start identifying the car. It's just a car found and there's uh, like a bone in the car. Maybe the people wouldn't even call if they just saw a thigh bone in the car. And without the license plates, you would never be able to really track the car again unless you wanted to take apart the dashboard and get the VIN number and all of that, which they are not doing for these other cars in this valley. So is it possible that someone was going through the trouble to make it even harder to find the remains of Philip Taylor Kramer? Is it possible that he had developed this technology that did allow him to transmit information instantly? Is it possible there are people in power who didn't want the ability for a little girl who goes missing to immediately be found across the neighborhood, across the world, it wouldn't matter. And within 30 minutes, you could find anyone who was missing. Government forces didn't want that. Is it possible that he came across proof that O.J. Simpson was set up by the U.S. government? They wanted to silence him on that. And he used his last words to speak truth about O.J. Simpson. Let's put on our conspiracy caps for a second, because I actually have a more disturbing ending to this. The universal equation is an equation that the father developed and he believes that it would break the laws of physics as we know. And when that universal equation was coupled with CD-ROM technology, it didn't break the laws of Einstein, but it broke the laws of what is able to be compressed onto a CD-ROM. You took this mathematical equation and you turned it into the digital sphere. You combined the two. And when Philip Taylor Kramer saw that universal equation on that CD-ROM software, his life spiraled out of control. It was successful, according to him. But from the time he did that, he did not sleep. He began making manic phone calls. He began talking about leaving the planet. People were after him. And he threatened to kill himself. Something that his family said he would never, ever do. What if the universal equation isn't just a series of numbers? What if it's the despair code? Longtime listeners of the show and longtime fans of conspiracy theory in general should be familiar with the despair code. It's 
a meme. We did an episode on it. It's basically an equation or a code or a glyph that if you read it, it causes you such utter despair and hopelessness that you can never break free again. It breaks your brain. It's looking at an unsolvable puzzle and you realize that that unsolvable puzzle is reality itself. There's no hope. There never was hope. There's only despair. What if the universal equation is part of the despair code? And when Philip Taylor Kramer took that equation and matched it up to what he was working on in that CD-ROM, he discovered the despair code. It's possible that that is what drove him mad and completely changed him over the next two weeks. It's also possible that that is what got him killed as well. What if there was an agency in the government that became aware of what Philip Tamer Kramer had actually done? He was about to create this compression software on the CD and unknowingly ship it off to millions of people. This new technology, you can put 10 movies on one CD, it'll change the world, but inside those CDs was the despair code. Everyone thinks they're getting their new Quake game or getting that new Celine Dion album, but really underneath it is a code that would drive you mad. And before he could release this, unknowingly, he had no idea what he had created, but before he could release this on the population of the country, before he could release it on the population of the world, they took him out. Two things can be true at once. You can create the despair code and slowly begin to go mad and also be assassinated by shadowy government adversaries because they know the longer you live, the higher the chance that the despair code leaves your laboratory and enters the real world. We may never know why Philip Taylor Kramer died. We may never know if there really is a single CD-ROM under lock and key in some government facility. Too dangerous to ever be accessed, but being held just in case. We may never know if the despair code was actually discovered in February of 1995. And we're probably the better off for it. Because to even acknowledge that the despair code exists means there's a possibility we may someday see it for ourselves. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, and I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. 